And I'm here with Pete Burak, That's right. <laughs> director of ID916. Uh, and uh, describe uh, ID916. What, what is that? Yeah, so ID916, our mission is to form young adults into intentional disciples of Jesus Christ. Basically help young adults grow in holiness and go make disciples. And what we do is we partner with parishes uh, around the country to hopefully make that a reality within the context of their parish by providing training, content, vision, language, ongoing support to build a what Pope Francis called the community of missionary disciples within the context of the parish, focus, focusing primarily on you know, 20s, 30s, married, single, with or without kids. Um, yeah, so that's, that's our mission. That's what we're trying to do is help the local parish reach this very bizarre and corrupt and all over the place generation we like to call millennials. You know? <laughs> <laughs> now, how old are you? I'm 30. So you're a millennial. Fully, right in the middle of it. <laughs> yeah. And what are the strengths and weaknesses that you see in the millennials? Yeah, it's a great question. There's, there's so many of them. I think um, there's, there's so many things that millennials have been accused of. Right? So we've been accused of being lazy, entitled, narcissistic, uh, and most of them are grounded in some level of truth, but a lot of it has come from the way we were raised. So uh, like for one example is uh, when I played soccer in fifth grade, I played in a tournament and we got sixth place and I got a trophy. You know? <laughs> and it was like, even then as a sixth grader, I thought, something's not right about this. <laughs> but what it told me was that I was good at soccer the thing is, though, I wasn't good at soccer. I was actually really not good at it at all. And so yeah. sometimes when, when, you don't, when you're never told what you're not good at, mm -hmm. you never find out what you're actually good at. Mm -hmm. So you get a, we have a whole generation of people who legitimately think they're great at everything, mm -hmm. but kind of deep down don't actually have the confidence in what their strengths are. So yeah. you get this, we enter the workforce or we enter the churches kind of acting like we should be in charge and we know what we need to do and all this. Right. But then when push comes to shove, we've, we're given responsibility and then... We don't know what to do with it, or, or we try something and fail, and then it, it kind of throws us all into a tizzy. Right. Um, right. So we, we have a high desire for uh, vision and a compelling why. Like, we want to be motivated by why, not what and how. Mm -hmm. uh, and the church often presents what to do and how to do it, and doesn't always present why. Mm -hmm. And what's tragic about that is we have the most compelling why in the history of mankind. Yeah. You know, not only salvation, but Jesus Christ crucified, died, rose from the dead. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit. You can be free from sin. You right. know, all the stuff that the church presents is so compelling. And so it still works. It's still a narrative that resonates with this generation. Yeah. Um, but we, we want to be motivated by that. Um, I mean, I could go on and on. There's, we're, we're super relativistic, right? We, every, your truth is your truth. Don't tell me what to believe, that mm -hmm. whole thing. And truth is based on what I experience, not based on anything outside of myself because I'm super cynical of leadership. Yeah. My generation, everyone who's ever stood in front of us and told us how to live mm -hmm. has let us down. Yeah. So sports figures, Tiger Woods, Joe Paterno, Jim Trestle, yeah. we held them up on a high pedestal. Turns out they have clay feet. But Political Jim Harbaugh's delivery. Jim Harbaugh, on the other hand, you know, <laughs> ironclad feet. <laughs> well done, buddy. Uh, you know, you go right through it. Political sphere. I was at the University of Michigan when President Obama was elected the first time. And there was literally a parade through the streets of town. Hmm. I joined in, not because I voted for him, but just it was kind of exciting. Hope and change. Yeah. Here's our guy. Here we go. You know, right. four years later, no parade, you know, because yeah. yeah. uh, we found out he had clay feet. And then you think about the scandals in the church. All these men and women, but primarily our leaders who we've we've should have been able to follow have let us down, and then even closer to home, the we're a product of a divorced generation. So yeah. the fundamental relationship that we should have been able to rely on has yeah. also proven to be rickety. Yeah, and so it leaves us in this weird state of desiring to be led and having no idea how to be led, and mm -hmm. then also being very cynical of of leadership. Right. Um, so there's 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 a lot of really wonderful things about it. we're still passionate we still believe in a the, the we're an optimistic generation statistically we still believe it's possible for things to get better yeah. um but there's also this deep unrest of not really knowing how to have real interpersonal relationships because everything's digital uh yeah. and wanting family but having no idea how to build it so it's yeah. kind of a strength and a weakness we know we have a deep down a sense of what we want but we don't really know how to do it yeah. you know, how to make it happen I've got a doctor friend here in town, he's like almost 70, and he's involved with the university here, med school, and um, and he works a lot with uh, med students and things, and 
he tells he tells me one thing that's different from his generation the new generation he says they're much more oriented to service a lot mm -hmm. of them want to do something that really makes a difference totally and yeah. i thought that's a great plus you know yeah. and actually like even taking that another step further we are extremely generous we just don't give to things that anyone expects mm. so like we give to things that move our hearts and that's usually like somebody who wants to create a hoverboard on GoFundMe. But like <laughs> the number of things that have been supported by millennials is through the roof. We're just not mm -hmm. giving to any of the traditional things like yeah. churches and uh, right. kind of the right. classic nonprofit route. We're, we're much more likely to write a check to our friends so that they can go on a mission trip somewhere than right. we are to whatever tithing would be, you know. Now, ID916 is reaching out to 20-somethings, 30-somethings. What do you think does draw them in, you know, to be discipled, to, you know, to be an evangelizer themselves? What is the message that resonates with them? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of getting back to the basics a little bit of the who is Jesus to you type of stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, let's just start with Jesus. Yeah. And then we'll, we'll talk about all the other stuff, but let's, right. let's just start with him. Yeah. You know, have you heard his call? Do you know that he loves you? You know, uh -huh. the force kind of the classic evangelical four spiritual laws. You know, mm -hmm. We were made for a relationship. We've broken that relationship. God yeah. sent Jesus to fulfill that relationship. And now we have hope of a new life in him. Like those things, the basics, we um, often assume that somebody mm -hmm. who's, even somebody who's raised in the faith may have heard that before. Mm -hmm. But it's amazing how many young adults who were catechized, sacramentalized, but really never heard the yeah. gospel, the, just right. the, the kerygma, you know. Yeah. Um, do you think there's like a new kind of fresh openness to the gospel now because our culture is so secularized? I do. Yeah, it is very, the gospel is at its best when it's countercultural, right? Mm -hmm. Like when the gospel, the core gospel is, is dynamic when it looks different. Um, and not to say that like Christendom was a bad thing. I mean, there's some mm -hmm. real value in when people generally all believed. That's a really right. good thing. Right. But we're not in that stage anymore. You know, <laughs> we're in an apostolic age. We're in a time when people are, you can't assume that people have the same values or understandings or kind of a common ground. And so the gospel, I think the gospel presented as personal experience and an invitation to somebody else is very compelling. Mm -hmm. So when I can look another young adult in the eye and be like, this is what I was like before I met the Lord. This is what it would look like for me to meet him. Mm -hmm. And now how, this is how my life looks. Mm -hmm. And I can look him in the eye and when I say the name of Jesus, something changes about my complexion and I like genuinely know him. Yeah, that's that's hard for young adults to ignore, um, right. because we have quick we put up our dukes really fast when it comes to any sort of moral mm -hmm. teaching, but relationship we want, yeah, uh, and we want to be loved and yeah. we want to be free of the gunk that we know is inside mm -hmm. of, and so that that um, that message resonates, and then it can lead to real behavioral change. You know, mm -hmm. like we're not just the kind of evangelical model of like give your life to the Lord and then you're done. It's like, right. no, there's, there's some really wonderful teaching and whole life that we need to learn how to live yeah. in the yeah. context of being free of serious sin, growing in virtue, growing in our prayer life, you know, coming back to the sacraments, discerning your vocation. All those things are absolutely necessary and beautiful. They just often um, kind of cart before the horse. Does that come first or does dealing with Jesus come first, you know, right. and, and figuring out what you think about him, you know? Did you have like a conversion experience in your life that? Yeah, I had, I had a few. Um, I, I was raised in a pretty exceptional Catholic family. I mean, we went to mass every Sunday. We prayed the rosary. We, I, I distinctly remember my parents just actually praying around us all the time. You know, like mm -hmm. when my grandfather passed away, the first thing we did was we got together as a family and we prayed. You know, so there was just like that was very normal and very. Just, that was the atmosphere that I was in, and and there were many other families living a similar way. So it was it wasn't unusual for me to be at a friend's house, and the name of Jesus would be spoken, and even directed, "Hey, what's God doing in your life these days?" You know. So, in, yet even in the midst of that pretty remarkable community, there was still a lot of um, like I had other priorities. Sports were my major priority, yeah. so I wanted to be a baseball player like my dad, and, and it was actually an injury that kind of caused me to yeah. pay attention to something bigger than myself. I was nine. Uh, which is, you know, out of the mouths of babes, you know, but I was nine years old. I, I hurt my shoulder really badly and came to the point where I wasn't going to be able to throw any ball with my right arm until I was probably around 17, 18 years old. Wow. So my dream of being a baseball player kind of popped 
And uh, I remember just being miserable and my parents brought me into the living room and said, okay, Pete, uh, we know you're going through a lot and your little heart is broken over your dream here. Um, but the only way you're going to be happy is if you give it to Jesus. So I trusted them, and they presented a compelling model of what this looked like. So I got down on my knees that night in my room and said, Okay, Jesus, my life is yours. Mm -hmm. And it's not like there was a thunderclap or anything like that. Yeah. It's just all of a sudden I was living for him instead of for myself. And yeah. so over the next several years, really, my faith just grew and grew because I knew he was real and he loved me. And he just, you know, those little kind of innocent prayers are the Lord loves that, you know. Unless you become like a child, you will not enter the kingdom of God, you know, yeah. he said. So to be able to, to kind of approach him in that way. But it wasn't until my freshman year of high school when um, I, I started high school and knew who God was. I knew that he loved me, but I didn't want anybody to know it. Because the peer pressure and the seniors and all that just was like too much. I couldn't handle it. I just wanted to be Pete Burek, the good student, good athlete, nice guy. And... Uh, this is probably more than you bargained for, but <laughs> the, the final kind of moment was I was at an all-school mass. It was a Catholic school. And You're in high school. High school, okay. freshman year of high school. And Father Lobert, who's giving the homily, gets up and he says, um, he's in, right in the middle of his homily. It was kind of bizarre. He was just like talking about something. I don't even remember what he was saying, but then he just stopped in the middle of it. And he said, okay, anybody who's ever experienced God, stand up. So a few people stood up over here and a few people stood up over here. And I couldn't stand up. I wanted to. I knew I should. I knew I was denying the Lord, but I couldn't do it. Yeah. So then he was a little distressed because it was a Catholic school and not that many people were standing. Yeah. So he made it easier on us. He said, okay, how many of you have ever seen like a, a mountain range or something beautiful in nature and kind of connected it to God? Mm -hmm. He said, stand up. So now more people stood up mm -hmm. over here and more people stood up over here. And for the second time, I couldn't stand up. Mm. And then uh, he made it even easier on us. He said, okay, how many of you have ever just gotten a really good hug or, you know, just felt loved? Mm -hmm. And you connected that to God. He said, stand up, you know. So now the whole choir stands up, and basically the whole sophomore class is standing, and people are standing all over the place. And uh, I couldn't stand up. I was rooted to the pew. I wanted to. I knew I should. But I was so weighed down by trying to live two different lives, the, the Christian life at home and the, just the normal freshman mm -hmm. kid at, at school life, that I was just I was weighed down. I like legitimately couldn't stand up. And... My mom was standing, though, because she came to every all-school mass. Mm -hmm. So she was standing in the back of the church, like, shooting lasers in the back of my head, <laughs> you know, wondering why I wasn't standing. And she always claims, you know, my name is Peter, so she always claims that, you know, she was waiting for the cock to crow. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, my parents always give me a hard time about that. But, yeah, that was the day, really. I came home from school that day, and my dad grabbed me by the shirt and basically just said, who are you? Who are you going to be? you got to decide uh, now. Yeah. You, can't, you can't be this, this dual-life thing. Uh -huh. And so I decided to live for him, and uh, oh. it hasn't been perfect. You know, yeah, there's been yeah. lots of uh, little yeah. moments in college and other ways that I've, I've struggled, but it's been basically trying to live for him ever since. And what made you want to go to Steubenville? Because you did two years at Michigan, then you went to Steubenville. Yeah, what, yeah. What made you? So I was at the University of Michigan, and my freshman year I had tried out for the basketball team and didn't make it, but was a manager. Was it, was it the loss to Appalachian State? Yeah, it's, you know, it's funny. That was my, that was my uh, sophomore year. It was... It was and I've never been there's two times that the stadium has felt like that Appalachian State and then a few years ago at Michigan State when we dropped the punt uh, the last play of the game and yeah. that oh my goodness the stadium was just was but like, they say the Appalachian State thing was like the biggest upset in, in the history sports. of college football yeah uh, like across the board yeah, well, let's, let's not, yeah like, I'm gonna stick to college football on that one just because it, st it still stings you know um, no no that didn't play into it but uh, yeah, so I was a manager for my the, for the basketball team my freshman year, and then my sophomore year I actually made the team at Michigan and was uh, yeah I know hard to believe six Whoa. foot white guy yeah um, that's an accomplishment yeah yeah it was pretty wild so I was uh, I was on the official NCAA roster and then a couple guys got hurt and and transferred and I got kind of promoted up to and so started dressing for games and had a uniform with my name on the back and everything and. Uh, and then heading into my junior year, I thought, everything is dandy. This is great. I'm living my dream. And through a very long story, uh, all the doors closed, basically. And I found myself needing a significant change. I needed to get out of Ann Arbor. I, need, I just needed something different. Mm -hmm. And I needed a stronger faith environment, too. And so I, for some reason, Franciscan University was just rattling around in my brain. So I went online, and it turns out they had a team. And they had uniforms and everything. Like, they played basketball there. And I thought, well, well, okay. So I sent the coach an email, just kind of on a whim. 
And within 20 minutes, he responded back saying, yeah, we'd love to, for you to come down and visit. <laughs> and <laughs> your injury didn't interfere? No, face- so I got, yeah, so that's part of the story. I literally got hurt every single season of my life except for one from the time I was nine all the way through college. Right. That's the way the Lord kept me coming back to him. I mean, I've, it's like head, shoulders, knees, and toes. I've can, mm. I can, concussions, broken noses, broken thumbs, broken ribs, broken ankles, broken you name it. So you're uh, all in. I'm all you in, man. You did it. You're all in. I, when I do something, I'm all in, for sure. And so, yeah, my parents and I went down to Franciscan, and as soon as I set foot on campus, I thought, uh-oh, this, something's, something's here, you know. And uh, everything worked out for me to transfer, and second day I was there, I met this really cute girl who happened to be the point guard on the on the women's basketball team and she's now my wife and it's just the Lord confirmed every step of the way and it turned into like a three semester retreat so I was at yeah. Michigan and it, I was grinding and going for it and yeah. those last three semesters at Franciscan were just it was just glorious you know? did you get a theology degree or no a history degree history yeah so by the time I transferred I only had so much if I wanted to graduate in four years, yeah, I I couldn't take some of the other. So I never got to take like Doctor Scott Hahn or anybody like that. But right. I was in a household, and uh, yeah. yeah, it was it was really great. Well, let's talk more about ID nine sixteen. That um, one thing that interests me a lot is that whole concept of mentorship and like you forming like a leadership team in a parish. Mm-hmm. You all come in, give the retreat, and. Mm-hmm materials and things for mm-hmm. laymen and women right to yep. disciple these 20 somethings 30 somethings yeah tell tell more about that formation like what are you looking for what do you tell them to do yeah um, yeah yeah at the early on it's it's just looking for people who are hungry to to have more and to be part of something more you know mm-hmm. so a lot of times in these these parish environments they're uh, father's got plenty on his plate. The last thing he needs is like one more thing to do, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, but there's, there's young adults and good leaders in the parish who are just waiting for a compelling why. They're waiting for a, a vision to stand up for. I, I tell people all the time, most good leaders don't respond to a call for volunteers, mm-hmm. or at least they, maybe they will to, to serve in some kind of limited capacities, but to really get them to give their time, talent, and treasure, they respond to a compelling vision not a call for volunteers and so Mm. often there's young adults who are just lying dormant in the pews waiting for something more Uh that can engage them and so um yeah our job isn't to to locate them because we're not on the ground with them our job Mm. is to take whoever they find Mm. and then pour into them with all sorts of different training and the training is everything from just straight up evangelization training how do we share the gospel with each other to uh-huh. more ID916 specific training because what we need these leaders to do is is less about practicals. There's a lot of practicals that can get done and, and that's not the, the hard part. It's how do you create people who have a common language and kind of a common movement of the heart that they can be ambassadors to their friends and their different cracks and crevices of society that they find themselves that can speak very knowledgeably and eloquently about what we're doing. So we give them language and we train them in the language and we help them talk about what it means to be an intentional disciple and what does evangelization look like and what does it mean to grow and go. And, and we even have, we stole it from some evangelical people and made it Catholic, the, all these shapes that uh, illustrate the life of Jesus. And we teach them these shapes because everybody can learn a shape. And it's very easy to take a shape that you've learned and give it to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And uh, so just very tangible, practical um, discipleship training with the expectation that then these people are commissioned to um, reproduce the DNA in somebody else. Now they could be between 20 and 40? Yeah, 20s and 30s, yeah. Oh, that's who you're getting as a leadership team. The leadership team is 20s and 30s. Now every once in a while we'll get uh, some older people who are really invested, Uh who want to have a mentorship role in, and I think that's brilliant. I mean, that's part of the beauty of a parish is cross-generational. I think too often we silo ministries as this is youth ministry, therefore nobody else can be involved in right, it. This is right. this is old person ministry. Heaven forbid yeah. a youth person, you know, comes around it. Yeah. So that, I don't think that's appropriate. But at the same time, there are times when it it just does work better to have targeted age brackets yeah. being reached. Yeah. And you said you tap into some uh, young people that did work in focus. Is that? Yeah, I mean anybody who's any young adult who's come out of. Catholic University, Franciscan U, Benedictine, Focus, SPO, you name it, uh, NET, Life Teen, anyone who's just kind of received some of this already, Mm -hmm. it just makes it easier because they already have a kind of an understanding when I say like conversion. They have a general sense of what I'm talking about. Um, 
it's not necessary, but it certainly does help. You know, I never thought of that aspect so much. I always, we do, we interview, seem like a lot of focused people and sure. stuff. We go to the conference, interview people. And I always think of, okay, they're out there doing work on university campuses. That's so powerful, so great. But I never think of like the real fruit of when these people that are in the Bible studies or the missionaries themselves when they're out in the world. Yeah. You know, yeah, they're all going to hopefully spread their faith. And it's like a real impact when you start you should, looking at that. You, you, would, you would really hope, right? You know? And yet right. what I think is what's fascinating or a huge challenge for, for Focus and all of us is, okay, so you have this experience on a campus, four years on a campus, or as a missionary or a Bible study mm-hmm. member. But there's some very unique things about a campus compared to kind of the real world, right? right. And so the, what they've been given, the DNA they've received, absolutely translates. But there are some... Kind of nuances and packaging that goes with it and so yeah i think one of the the biggest resources the american church has right now is all these people who are coming through focus or any of these ministries who are now in normal parish life who uh, have what what it takes to build the kingdom yeah, yeah. and maybe are just waiting to be tapped right know? right I, I was talking to somebody from denver I said, Denver seems like just to be this hot pocket. I mean, focus is in that area. Right. And all. And he, he said he thinks ministry attracts ministry or that you have people that leave focus maybe that are working there and they go and start something else and right. start another ministry. You know? Yeah, right. And uh, so I, to me, on one level, it seems so, I think that's one thing that the American church does well is, you know, like starting these movements and, sure. you know, and, and, you know, getting the money, the funding, and to do something that's successful, you know, yeah, so right. do that well. We were just in Denver for, we did a millennial church conference there, which is a one-day professional development day for a diocese on how to make their parishes young adult empowering. And what was fascinating to me was Denver has all these incredible things. You know, you got Focus, you got the Augustine Institute, you've got Forums, you've got, you know, uh, all, all, um, Endow, you've got Christ in the City, yeah. you've just got this crazy amount of stuff. Yeah. But the parishes don't necessarily receive all of that fruit right. because those ministries are doing things yeah. all over the place. Yeah. But the, par- the local parish reality in Denver, mm-hmm. shockingly, wasn't, wasn't terribly different than yeah. many other parts of the country. It's like, right. And that's where, not to toot our own horn, but right. that's where we feel particularly called is to help the parish mm-hmm. because properly understood, the parish is brilliant. I mean, if you think about it, the entire world has been conquered by the church because of parishes. Every square foot of this planet mm-hmm. is in a parish. Right. That's pretty amazing, you know? <laughs> like every soul on the planet exists within a parish, not yeah. in the four walls, but in the geographic boundary. Yeah. Yeah. So if we can get these institutions to rediscover kind of that movemental, that's not even a real word, but like the, the real movement of the spirit mm-hmm. that allows us to be an institution on the move, uh, whew, talk about where revival comes from. It's of course the movements play a role and of course yeah. outside ministries are really important. Yeah. But in some ways the parish is just such a beautiful building block. It is. You know, I when I go on a like a vacation with my family, you know, I, I we go my mom's got a place in Florida, we go down there and I always plug into the local parish. Yeah. And I forget, you know, when I'm here and I got my community and all this stuff, you know, just it just transforms your vacation. I mean you can go you get plugged into their community. This parish I go to is like it's very open, hospitable. I'll preach and hmm. even hear confessions and stuff. Nice. Get to know people. Yeah. I mean, it it just enriches a vacation so sure. much, and it's it's you know it's just a place to to get strength from and everything. And um, I forget that being part of a religious order, sure. priest. Yeah. But uh, yeah. yeah, it's like you know the. The church has a lot of institution aspect about it that can be so powerful. Totally. Um, I think the key thing is, is, is the institution at the service of movement or is movement at the service of the institution in the sense mm-hmm. of like the church was born on the move. St. John Paul II talked about this. The church on Pentecost was born on the move. Mm-hmm. And as they moved, they built just enough structures to support what the spirit was yeah. doing, you know? Right. And they the deacons even, or, you know, different moments of, oh, we need a council to figure this out. So we build what that is, you know, and certainly once Constantine and all that, we we have a certain established institution 
that right. had a l tremendous amount of value. But part yeah. of what I think we need to, the pendulum needs to swing a little bit more towards the, the movement side. And maybe that means scaling down some of our institutions, not because they don't, aren't good in and of themselves, but at the time we are in, we need more resources directed towards movement and just enough to keep it strong and Catholic and full and, you know, upright. Yeah. But not I think it's happening right now. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> with yeah. all the stuff that's going on. I mean, the, right. You, you think know. about the number of parishes that yeah. are closing in yeah. Pittsburgh or in uh, Boston yeah. or Chicago. Yeah. I mean, clearly something dramatic is happening, yeah. um, which is both cause for concern, but also cause for an opportunity. It's okay. Well, yeah. what does that mean for the life of the church? Because the church isn't going anywhere. Right. I mean, the gospel still works. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, we've been talking to more guests. It seems like it's increasing that that foster like small groups. Mm -hmm. And um, I know it's part of your ministry. Yeah. And uh, we got a mega church just a couple of miles, if that, down the road here that the pastor said in an interview one time, he said the health of any church he believes is, you know, is, is, is rooted in like the vitality of the small groups in that church. And, uh, and I remember it just hit me. I said, man, we really got to do that in the Catholic Church. And now it seems like, tell yeah. us about the small groups yeah. that you do and what, what happens there that's mm -hmm. so special. Yeah, that's great, yeah. So the discipleship groups, um, the men's and women's groups, four to six men, four to six women meeting on a regular basis, ideally like every other week. And the purpose of at least our discipleship groups are, are not to be the group that you'll be with maybe for the rest of your life, but more for a season of time to help work through some really good content and kind of hold you accountable to some of the basic fundamental practices of a disciple, daily prayer, scripture reading, connection with other disciples, and, and then genuine giving of yourself and your time, talent, and your treasure to build the kingdom. And so what we found is just like, it can be very easy to come to Mass, but like a, be a very faithful Catholic, come to Mass, and basically nobody in your community ha know anything about you. You know, you can, you're kind of that anonymous Catholic, a little right. different than what Ronner meant by it. But yeah. like, the, you just kind of come into the church and you do your thing and you leave, right? Yeah. And um, it just doesn't seem like through the history of the church, that's how, the, the, when the church has been healthy, that's not the way it exists. Mm -hmm. That there are, there's true life on life together, life in community and life on mission together. And so the goal of our discipleship groups is just to take a step in that direction to say, let's put our cards on the table. Let's start to live in the light together. Let's agree to challenge each other and hold each other accountable to some of the things we've agreed to. And then let's work through some genuinely effective discipleship content. So we've produced video series, little 15-minute teaching videos that form the foundation of the teaching. And it's not catechesis. It's not Bible study. It's discipleship. It's how does a disciple pray? What's the, what do I do with my time, talent, and treasure? How do I extend and receive forgiveness? How do I communicate in love? And some of these really fundamental things that aren't often taught Mm -hmm. uh, we wanted to do that and so we just it's just trying to make some of the big stuff that's out there small and and double down on the fact that human beings really do need a, a pack to run with a tribe to run with right. not right. just a big large group we really do need kind of more like yeah. middle-sized extended family size units to run with and so part of that extended family size unit could be a smaller group within it that we would call a discipleship group yeah. And then the rest of what we do is more of like an extended family trying to live on mission together. Yeah. I mean, it just seemed like in the culture as a whole, um, you know, we're more isolated. We're, you know, we're not even watching the same things. When I was growing up, we all watched Happy Days, all yeah. in the family. Well, there <laughs> we were could, three channels, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you could, kind of, you could all comment and kind of unite around the, but now entertainment's very individualized and activities and, you know, all these different kind of exercise, sports, and every kind of activity, whatever you could find that suits you. And, and it, I don't know, it just seemed like we're spending more alone time than ever. Right. And, and it seemed like in the past, you know, maybe the church was more a place of different things happening that people would do, you yeah. know, for fun or recreation and everything. Yeah. And uh, so, but like a small group, one of the leaders would be there in the group or yeah so either like the leadership team doesn't necessarily have to be the leaders of the discipleship mm -hmm. groups in some ways ideally they'd be raising up other people who uh -huh. could lead them we don't even call them leaders we call them facilitators because okay. we want them to be more like one among equals that right. the idea is it's not one person coming to disciple this group we're all discipling each other around jesus letting jesus disciple whole group through yeah. each other you know and through the content um and so the, the facilitator is more from a practical standpoint, 
helping make sure everyone knows when we're meeting and why yeah. and you know when and uh, if there's any food involved great or if the, the videos or just all those various practical things are in place. So there's some materials they would show that you all yeah yeah so we have yeah. um, enough 15-minute uh, videos for a group to, if they met every other week for a year they'd have a video each time they met and is that like one-on-one -on -one stuff uh, suggested encouraged like yeah you know it's I, I think anytime people can meet one-on-one -on -one, that's a that's a really positive yeah. thing part of the reason our model is as simple as it is mm -hmm. is because it's trying to recognize that even just doing all of that mm -hmm. seems pretty substantial for a lot yeah. of young adults yeah. and so if you've got some leaders who are really capable and and have the time and and um, have the heart for it then yeah we'd love to see some of that stuff organically emerge yeah. um, we just recognize that a lot of times young adult life between vocational things between new job between young family between all yeah. the other things that the parish offers that they should be involved in it's we, we haven't built it off of the one-on-one -on -one model yeah uh, that we found actually just kind of more organically emerges as people get to know each other and relationships mm -hmm. form and friendships are yeah, formed. Yeah. I know I'm part of a group. It's like five couples, teams of our lady and Oh yeah. Yeah, and I've done it. I'm in my like my second group and I've done it for years and uh and I I thought early on I would think okay, man, we got to go deeper. We got to do this and do this and do this and like the, the group now I mean, I said let's just just meet, just come together, yeah, you know, right, right. and stuff will happen. Yeah, you know, just something yeah. to bring us together because we're just so yeah. scattered, you know. Yeah, to your point, yeah. there's never been more options for your attention. Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest challenges the church has is just simply getting the attention of the people. You right. know, the analogy I heard the other day that I thought was really appropriate is that the church has turned into, for many people, like an Elk Lodge or a Kiwanis Club or, you know, you're driving down the road and you see like Elk Lodge 572 and you're yeah. like, huh, yeah. I wonder what that is. You know, right. do you ever go in? No. Yeah. If you met somebody from the Elk Lodge, would you be like violently opposed right. to it? No, probably not. Yeah. You know, like you, it's almost just like this, this relic of something that's out there that I don't know what value it is, mm -hmm. but if you want to be a part of it, go for it you know right. but nobody ever just like voluntarily goes into an elk lodge and so many of my generation is that's kind of where we're at with the church where yeah. we drive by it and we kind of go oh yeah that's a thing and if you're in the church great that's right. good for you you yeah. know yeah. Uh, but the the sense of why it would be important or kind of the church having a relevant grasp on our attention at least for my generation is is one of our biggest challenges just getting people's eyeballs and ears to to be watching and listening yeah and, you know, but I, I sometimes, I heard somebody say this, that, um, you know, like the power of just preaching and, mm -hmm. and obviously, you know, people have more or less talent with it, but there's still something about just talking to somebody. Totally. You know, we can't compete like with Hollywood, at UWTN we feel this, you know, how are we going to compete with, you know, big budgets, super talented people, and put together something that's so beautiful and moves so fast, you know, you can't compete with that. And, but, you know, maybe still that there's something powerful about talking to somebody directly mm -hmm. and that kind of, and also I think too, you know, maybe what draws people is just paying attention to somebody. Totally. You know, that, yeah. uh, I, we had one of our guests say one time, you know, people go where they're loved. Totally. And, and so, yeah, we're all overly entertained and distracted, but we still hunger for some of these fundamental things. Oh, couldn't, <laughs> couldn't agree more. The number one way we've ever reached anyone is through a smile, an eyeball-to-eyeball yeah. -eyeball interaction. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Let's go get coffee, and I'm going to yeah. ask you questions and get to know you. Yeah. Um, certainly, social media and media and all these other things can play a role and there are arrows in our quiver as we try to get the gospel out yeah, there yeah. but nothing replaces the Jesus walking by the, the lake and saying come follow me yeah. you know whatever was in his eyes was right. what was compelling you know yeah. he didn't do a bulletin announcement to get disciples right. I mean, he invited yeah. them personally mm -hmm. and then he dined with them and then he lived with them and then he you know he taught mm -hmm. them and he did all those really beautiful things and um, and that's, I, I'm more convinced than ever, that's really ultimately the, the best weapon we have is disciples filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, being able to witness both in life and word uh -huh. what they believe. You know? Yeah. Maybe too, if I get you on tape here, so to speak, what yeah. would you tell 
uh, young people about the greatness of marriage. I, I feel that as a preacher, that I, I hit that theme a lot, that you know, we lose confidence. I remember we had a guest on one time, young adults group in Washington, D.C., highest concentration of young adults yeah. in the world, yeah. in the country. And, um, and she said, she wants to get married, but the guys are, they want to get their career going, they want to make some money, they're very frightened about the obligations and the challenges of marriage. And uh, they want to get all this stuff in line and then take the leap, so yeah. to speak. Yeah, but right. you married young. I um, did. Sell it to us. Tell yeah. us how great it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love marriage. I couldn't recommend it more highly. I mean, yeah. if you're called to marriage, it is fantastic. It yeah. really is. Um, I think there's a lot of factors as to why we're seeing the, what we're seeing in terms mm -hmm. of the delayed marriage and then if we get married at all type of thing. Um, I think one of them is... You know, young adults are notoriously allergic to commitment right. because our whole lives we've always needed to keep our options open because what if something better comes along? You know, it's like when I ask a friend to go to a movie on a Friday night, they'd say, yeah, 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 maybe I'll be there. Like, <laughs> what does that mean? Are you coming or not? You know, and it's like totally ridiculous, but that's just... I, I've heard that so much. Oh, you sure, yeah, right? It's, it's the maybe actually, generation. Yeah. It's like, I, to me, that's our best, the best way to describe us. And it's funny, it's also... I think, a, not to be overly dramatic, but I think it's the work of the evil one. Because you can't be a disciple unless you commit to the master. Right. And Jesus has some pretty strong words about lukewarmness, which is basically maybe. You know, you're either in or you're out, otherwise vomit's involved, right? And right. so, like, uh, I think the devil has worked very hard to instill in, in this generation this, let's keep all of our options open, what if something better comes along, you always need an out, yeah. Heaven forbid you fully commit to yeah. someone or something because what if they hurt you or what if right. it doesn't work out right. or all that. So there's that underlying fear that just needs to be identified, broken, and kind of stepped over. Secondly, I think um, there's, this, there's this very interesting dilemma within Catholic dating world where rightfully so, the theology of the body and chastity and purity has been held up to a very high esteem. And believe me, I couldn't believe in that more. Yet at the same time, what happens is, is then very faithful men and women almost lose the ability to kind of romance each other and kind of have a, the, 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 the holy flirtation or whatever yeah. you want to call it, but yeah. like the ability to kind of be human in that moment yeah. and, and have the fun of, of pursuit. And right. it's almost right. like we become, we're either, Over we're so afraid. <laughs> yeah, it's like we become these, these, these uptight prudes of like, I don't know if I should ask her out until I've done five holy hours. It's like, yeah, I get that. Like, we want to be with, you want to follow yeah. the Lord and all that, but at the same time, that's just not what relationships look like. You know, yeah. there, there's there, there has to be some passion, there has yeah. to be some fun, and there has to yeah. be some of that. Not again within the the, the parameters that are appropriate, yeah. but yeah. so I think there's there's those types of things, and then, um, yeah, I, I've heard a lot of people who just are saying, you know, I want to wait till I'm married, or I want to wait till I've got a job or money and all yeah. that. And I, my response is, basically, you're never ready for anything until you just do it. Yeah. You know? Like, yeah. think about any human experience. Mm -hmm. You can read about it. You can watch somebody else do it. You can think about it. But until you do it, right. you're really not ready to do it right. until you yeah. do it. So marriage is no different. Yeah. Parenthood is no different. Anyone who says, like, oh, I think I'm ready for a kid. You're like, yeah. no, you're not. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, the, and, and then you get into this perpetual, I'm not ready yet. Like... What's the difference between having $10,000 in the bank and $100,000 in the bank? Because at $100,000, you're still going to feel like, I think I need some more so right. I can buy that house or whatever. Yeah. And it's, and it's a, a, a false, it's almost like a false humility to be like, I got to wait until everything's ready. That's, that's, that's pride, mm -hmm. ultimately, because you're, you're looking at yourself and saying, I have to have it all together. And trying to control it. And trying yeah. to control it, yeah. exactly. Instead of letting the Lord dictate when these things need to unfold. Yeah. Um, and I just heard some stats that said, you know, married people, you know, I think, I don't think are just talking about the guys, but they, they live longer. They enjoy a better sex life than like the promiscuous yeah. single person. Yeah. They're happier. I mean, they, they say there is, it, raising kids, they're a little less happy. It's more difficult. <laughs> but long term, they're more happy. But I think too, I mean, the kids obviously would be the greatest joys. I mean, I, I always think that was such a powerful lesson taught to me by my grandparents. It's like, they're getting on in their lives and they, you know, one set had some money and everything. And it's like, they were all about the kids. Yeah. It was like that was I mean the grandkids and yeah. 
And that was like a powerful lesson. It wasn't just about acquiring more stuff, doing more things, but it taught you that people are most important. They really are. And we're walking away from the most intense personal relationships and not having a family, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> and, uh, no, and, and you're, you're so yeah. right. I, when I, people ask me about fatherhood, so I've got three and another one on the way. We've, we're about to have our fourth. And uh, I tell people it's the most uh, difficult and rewarding thing I've ever done. Mm-hmm. I've never been more challenged in my life than yeah. trying to figure out how to help a three-year-old eat mm-hmm. the thing that's in front of them, you know? And you had to guard and see. Yeah, I mean, one. I got elbowed <laughs> in the face by a 6'10 guy, you know? Like, I, there's some real stuff that happened there, you know? Uh, but to, to try to, to, to raise a kid in virtue and instill in them right and wrong and all of it, yeah. and then not to mention the zombie mode of when they're not sleeping, so you're not sleeping and all yeah. that. No question, extremely challenging. Uh-huh. But talk about rewarding. I mean, yeah. just before we came on, I'm FaceTiming with my kids, and they're basically falling over each other to try to, to talk to me and tell right. me about their day and all yeah. this. And they just, yeah. it's like such unbelievable, unconditional love. Yeah. That it's just, it's just yeah. glorious. And I just, you know, the culture has done a, a weird thing with this where having kids is, is well, getting married is the old ball and chain. You're right. going to be miserable, right? right. Then having kids is like, well, they're going to, you're never going to have money anymore. You're not going to be able to retire. You're going to, you know, yeah. blah, 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 blah. And it's just like, even if some of that might be true, yeah. why can't we talk about the fact that marriage is just awesome yeah. and fatherhood is totally glorious? You know, like, I don't understand why that narrative can't be presented. Um, and even the money thing, this, I was, I was reading Mona Sharon's book on the, like the sexual revolution. And she said, you get married, stay married, you're going to have more money. And you're more yeah. likely to get into the middle class, you know, as a young couple and everything. And uh, it, was just like, it was just like a benefit on every single level. Right. And uh, Yeah, if you look at the lives of, like, the actual one percenters, yeah. a lot of them mirror more of the traditional values mm. than what they would even she promote. She made that point, yeah. You know, yeah. a lot yeah. of them get married and stay married. A yeah. lot of them have kids. Yeah. Like, because it's actually a great way to live. Right. on every level and there's a reason yeah. why the government was always supportive of that there was a reason right. there was tax breaks for children and all that because yeah. the government recognized like this is the best way for our citizens to be brought into the world right. sustained in the world <laughs> and yeah. be productive citizens in the future yeah. um, I mean I live not that far from Detroit and the, the, just recently there were some statistics that came out that it's like in the high 80% of all kids born in the city of Detroit are to single mothers Yeah, and you wonder why Detroit is going through some of the stuff it's going through. It's right. like, yeah, yeah the, the auto industry crashing, that was, that was tragic, and the, all the yeah. different things that mm-hmm. went into it. But fundamentally, if you don't have moms and dads who are raising kids together, yeah. it really, really does impact the culture. Right. And the, the single mothers, you know, are reduced to poverty, you know, most of the time. Yeah. You know, try and they're doing the, the best they yeah. can or yeah. whatever, but it's, it's just, it's, they're, they're dealing with, or they're playing with a, against a stacked hand, you know? Yeah. So you, you've done quite a bit of traveling and things and giving presentations and talks. And what are some of the things that excite you, sign of hope, life, that gets you moving about the faith that you see, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> That's, I think it goes back to um, people, you know? Uh-huh. Like, you go to these places and to just find genuine faith. Yeah. Uh, I was just in Baltimore and there was a bit of a snafu with some of the things that went into it and ended up being a much smaller group than I was anticipating. But Jesus was there and the, uh-huh. the faith of the people I was with like sustained me in the kind of the disappointment of like, oh man, I would have liked to have a few more people here. Right. Who was there was like very genuine people. I think the other thing that's really encouraging is um, the common language that's emerging. So language we know informs culture. So to like the convocation a few years ago in, in, uh, in where was that, in Orlando, of the U.S. Convocation of Bishops, where we, mm-hmm. it was all about discipleship, and, mm-hmm. and there started to be this common language that's emerging of what does it really mean to, to do this together, yeah. and the, which is just huge, because until people can say something and mean the same thing, it's right. very difficult to kind of yeah. move culture in any yeah. significant way. So I think that's huge. And then... Um, I think a lot of, like the apostolates we mentioned, a lot of the, the various things that have been highlighted on your mm-hmm. shows over yeah, the years, like yeah. people doing something. Right. You know, I think that is, <laughs> it sounds so obvious, but like 
let's be people who do things, not just talk about doing things, <laughs> you know? And to see on your show people who, you know, I think about Jen Baugh who started Young Catholic Professionals or uh, that one guy you had on who was a yeah. bodybuilder who's trying to be fit for you know, fit in faith or whatever. It's like, that's so great. Like, God bless you, man. Like, is that my thing? No, but you're going for it, you know? Yeah. Like, you're, you're doing something. That, to me, is very significant yeah. and encouraging. Let me ask you one more question. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's something that was troubling for me uh, you know, with this last Supreme Court nominee that we just saw like such a division between like a, a feminist movement and, you know, against men. And, you know, I've heard marriage described as being, you know, it's this great place that brings these two, you know, quote unquote opposites together in marriage. You know, it's just a place of foundational that can build unity, yeah. you know. And, uh, you know, in my lifetime, it just, and I don't know if it's just because of our media just shows it to us 24-7, but um, what do you think Christianity can speak into that to help heal? It seems like this growing antagonism, mm -hmm. you know, between mm -hmm. men and women. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if this is just certain, obviously, it's not, I guess, the majority of Americans, but uh, yeah. it does seem like it's, it's increasing. You yeah. Know? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no question. The amount of vitriol and kind of anger and uh, almost dehumanizing of yeah, everybody, yeah, yeah. both sides to each yeah, other. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the, the Christian principles of seeing the divine spark and recognizing that every all these people are made in the image and likeness of God yeah. goes a long way yeah. in, uh, in in starting to, to think differently about your political opponent, you know? Right. Um, I think... The, the art of listening has been completely yeah. destroyed yeah. to genuinely listen to mm -hmm. the other person instead of right. me formulating your next thought or yeah. I mean I was, I've watched some of those the, the, the Kavanaugh hearings and it was like every senator really none of them were listening to what he was saying <laughs> I mean, they didn't really care what he said because they already knew what they were going to say next yeah. you know? and it yeah. was just like a sham of a, mm. a dialogue there was no dialogue there mm. it was just each person pontificating about yeah. what they wanted to say yeah. you know yeah. And that's just, that's just really, really unfortunate. Um, I think the other thing that's, that's startling is how many of those people that we're watching on the screen are self-professed Christians. Right. So it's like, well, wait a minute, guys. You know, where's, where's mercy? Where's justice? Where's yeah. forgiveness? Where's right. charity? Yeah. I mean, it, it shouldn't. It, authentic Christian life doesn't check those things at the door when we start to yeah. get into the political realm, you know? You know what I found chilling was at McCain's funeral, and I didn't even watch the coverage. I was watching some of the replays of the speeches at the funeral. And, you know, the fact that this is getting way off base, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The fact it's a that podcast. We can do that. Yeah. Yeah, that's the whole point of this. <laughs> yeah, like that, that, you know, Trump was not allowed to come. And for some reason, I just found that so chilling you know, like as a Christian, yeah. that you don't have forgiveness, even in, I don't know who made the, I guess McCain did make the decision, but like even in death, yeah, I, I've thought, I couldn't even want, that, that just, that was so disturbing to me that like, I'm hoping at the moment of death, you know, I'll be open to everybody or whatever, you know, I'm not going right. to hold grudges. Right. And I mean, our faith speaks into that, you know, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Right. And, and for that kind of, I mean, you could say on one level, it's just poor taste. You, know, you wouldn't do it in the culture years ago, but you know, maybe do it in back rooms or whatever. But the, you know, just the openness of it and the acceptance of it, to me was like, it just spoke of like the coarseness of our culture that was frightening to me. <laughs> yeah, no, right. I mean, think about like, uh, they probably said the Our Father at his funeral. Yeah. What part of the Our Father? It's like, forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who yeah, trespass against yeah, us like yeah. there's a very real and, and that's what's been I think most disturbing for me is watching the political sphere it's one thing to argue about issues yeah. and strategies for the, yeah. the economic strategies or even cultural strategies yeah. it's another thing to to move into the realm of you're you're an evil human being right. because you believe something differently yeah. than me and that we can't unite even at a funeral yeah yeah, that's really scary because I was like, we can't unite on what we believe about the natural law and about right and wrong on so many issues, and that's disturbing and yeah. that dooms us there. 
But man, we can't interview, I mean, we can't unite to celebrate someone's life or the good points of their life. Yeah. That, and to pray for them. Yeah. It's really unsettling to me to yeah. see that. Talk about <laughs> a slippery, I mean, like, talk about a slippery slope from, yeah. Yeah, it is. And you know, it's, it's interesting is, is as, as prevalent as all that is, there's still a ton of Americans who just basically don't care about it right now. They're yeah. like, at least in my, especially yeah. in my generation, you've got our hotheads. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of us have just kind of written off the whole thing. Like this is just broken. This yeah. is just the whole thing's broken. I mean, I yeah. was watching the again the Kavanaugh hearings and uh, Senator Feinstein starts speaking, and my only thought I I couldn't even hear what she was saying because I just went, <laughs> pardon me, but I was just like, man, she is old. <laughs> you know, what is she doing? Still doing this thing? Spoken and, like a troubadour. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. I mean, you got you got this other guy, uh, Orrin Hatch, who's like every time he spoke, he said, "Well, from my 55 years of experience on this committee," and I go, "Man, we need some fresh blood around here." You know, this is getting a little silly. And so the whole the whole system, the whole everything about it, just is yeah. is is hard to get excited about. You know, or yeah. find even any redemptive value in it. You know, right, right. You know, the other thought I had, too, was, I thought St. Thomas Aquinas, I think, addresses this issue about, you know, was it fitting that Christ, you know, he challenged certain cultural hmm. mores for women. You know, he, like, lifted up the dignity of women. And, of course, it's always fitting. You know, he just poses that question. But right, right. I, I saw that, too. I mean, it just reminded me that it's like, it's you know, it's it's a role of a man who is often in the world and often you know, forming culture and ways of leadership and positions of power, authority, that, yeah, it's our job to protect women, protect dignity, to, you know, to Mm -hmm. elevate them, to incorporate them in society as much. I mean, I don't like the ugly, radical, militant feminism, but at the same time, it just kind of reminded me that we do have a duty. That's our service. You know, we could say, like, women have the special gift to nurture life and to... And the weak and to care for people and all that they clearly have gifts for that clearly you know and if right. they don't if they don't use those gifts you know that work's not getting done a lot of times right. and if we're not as men you know making this forming culture and that respects women respects marriage children all this stuff um there's just chaos is what we get yeah. right know? i mean you think about even the way our bodies are designed women to receive to nurture to kind of protect life in a particular way close to them yeah and then men to give to even die so to speak for for new life right and uh how men are always designed to be the ones to lay down their life for the good of the the women and the children and not because of a a weakness thing but because of a complementarity and just kind of a a divine nature that that he's instilled and so yeah it's really it's tragic when you get into a place where both parties, not political parties, but male and female, are kind of either rejecting or just deconstructing their role. Yeah. Trying to be the other or right. trying to best the other right. or trying to domineer the other. I mean, right. like yeah. whenever that starts to happen, that just yeah. it's going yeah. right back into the garden. I mean, we, yeah. we end up right back at the beginning, you know. Yeah. And again, it seemed like marriage really brings out these gifts in each. You know, mm-hmm. There's like a flourishing uh, that both are strong and both live out their gifts in the place of marriage and family in such a beautiful way. Yeah. But, um, but anyway, it's been great talking with yeah, you. Yeah, that's fun. And uh, keep up the good work. Thanks, Bob. We're counting on you millennials out there. So <laughs> We're going for it. <laughs>